0: Wasn't it good hearing the testimony? I, uh, one of my jobs as an elder is to hear testimonies for membership and testimonies for baptismals, and I love it, and we had begun doing that right before all the coronavirus pandemic hit, and then we had to retool our services once we got back in because of the the time constraints, but with us now, um. Having uh, no Sunday school for for a little while, we're able to expand our services, and so we're going to be reintroducing a lot of this stuff back into services. So I'm excited about that. Thank you, Paul. Wonderful testimony. And take your Bibles and turn to First Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15. We're going to be in verse number 20. Uh, the song "Glorious Day" was perfect song to uh, introduce the, the the sermon today. I. I know I say this a lot, and I promise you it's not trite, but when I get into God's Word, it just is stunning the way God's Word unfolds. I've read 1 Corinthians 15, I don't know how many times, and a lot of times, Landon, you're probably the same way you read it, a lot at funerals, parts of it. And, and just seeing the way Paul talks about the resurrection and how he organizes everything is just, it's It's beautiful. And so we've we've looked at two sections already. In the first two sections, we've seen how that how he treats the resurrection. He defends the truth of Christ's bodily resurrection in verses one to eleven. And then last week he we saw where he spells out the in, for lack of a better term, absolutely disastrous consequences if there is no resurrection, right? And it was just, it was it was really heavy last week. I don't know if you felt that or not. But If Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead, then Christianity is true. And so is the gospel the Corinthians believed, is what uh, Paul is arguing. But if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then Christian preaching and teaching is all false. This is all fairy tale that we're up here talking about, if it's not true. And the Corinthians the gospel that they believe was vain then or useless, if that were the case. A, and, and the reason for that is that it's very simple, isn't it? A dead Savior cannot save anybody, right? If he can't even save himself, how can he save other people? But because Jesus did rise again from the dead, Paul must address the relationship between Christ's own death and resurrection And the bodily resurrection of the saints at the end of the age. And that brings us to the passage we're in today. So if you'll stand with me, we'll read God's word together. Verse number. I'm going to start in verse number 19 because I I want us to see the continuation of the argument. He ends that section, verse number 19, by saying, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Isn't that great? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who puts all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Lord, we thank you for this, uh, being able to study the resurrection and and learn uh, 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 all there is that you want us to know about the resurrection. We thank you that we have that eternal hope. We thank you for all the ramifications and implications of, of the resurrection. I pray that, Lord, our hearts will be knit to you and that we'll praise and honor and worship you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Um, the importance of the resurrection is very simple, isn't it? Christ gained the victory over sin and death by his sacrifice on the cross, and his resurrection uh, was the the proof that God accepted that. However, and this is important, everybody, everybody, you don't want to miss this. The full realization of what Christ has achieved. Will not occur until he comes again. That's important for us to remember. You could say it like this: Victory is secured, but not completely won. I, I think the best way to for, to help us to understand what this means is an illustration from history. There, during World War II, there were two dates that were uh, um, decisive for the success of the Allied forces in in Europe. The first date was June 6, 1944. We know it as D-Day, right? The battle for Normandy began. And the second date was um, May 8, 1945, which was VE Day. And the Allies accepted the the surrender of the German Army. Although an interval uh, separated these two occasions by almost a year, the, the the first inevitably led to the second. The victory at Normandy marked the turning point in the war. D Day ensured VE Day. And Christ's resurrection from the dead ensures that we will one day conquer death. If you woke up this morning, you're a little bit sore. It doesn't feel like it though, does it? <laughs> Christ's victory over death guarantees and assures that all who trust in Him, that on that day of our, let me let me rephrase that, Christ's victory over death and His resurrection assures all believers that one day our resurrection will come. Christ, the first fruits from the dead, reigns until He defeats every enemy and subjects everything to God for His glory. And so what Paul does, and we're going to see this in, in three broad strokes, Paul uh, unpacks this message in three movements. He begins by demonstrating the certainty of the resurrection. And I love it. I could have just spent my whole time on this one section. Secondly, he shows the order of events, and finally, he gives details of his reign. And that's what we're going to see today. First of all, the certainty of the resurrection verse number 20 look at it with me together it says but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection now do you know what first fruits is first fruits is is amazing I, I i would love to just take time and just run through first fruits and all the how closely first fruits is tied to our spiritual life there's it's beautiful and it's deep, and I could spend about 40 minutes just doing that today. It's, it's a wonderful truth, but I'm going to com- compress it because we have a lot to cover. The First Fruits Festival is, is a festival that has a rich history in the Old Testament. While I'm talking, if you'll turn to Leviticus 23, we'll get there in just a minute. It has, it has a rich history in the Old Testament, and so this is the way First Fruits worked. Of first fruits um, was with all harvests, but particularly with the grain harvest. There were two grain harvests. Do you remember what they were? The barley harvest, which normally happens somewhere around or around Passover, because barley ripened very uh, very much earlier than wheat, and then the wheat harvest, which occurred somewhere right around Pentecost. And there's a there's a connection there as well, by the way. And um so, so the, the what they would do then is they would take a the first part of the grain, the 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 best and the right grain, and they would take a sheaf of it, and they would take it to the house of God, and they would wave it. And by the way, they didn't wave it like this, okay? They waved it like this, as in it's a prayer to God. And so leviticus twenty three, shows us this festival. I want us to read this together, beginning in verse number 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest will wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and a drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until the same day, until you have brought the offering to your God, is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. I just want to point out something. Did you see where it says, is a statute forever? Do they still do that today? Uh, uh, we don't. We don't do that because we are the first fruits, you see. Let me explain. The feast of the first fruits, I want you to notice that it took place the day after the Sabbath, which was a what? A Sunday. Right? And Christ was resurrected when? On a Sunday. And so Christ is the first fruits. He was resurrected uh, when the first fruits offering would have been made. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, and I don't have this in my sermon notes, but I have to tell you this. It is most likely that Christ ascended, or I'm sorry, not, not ascended. But the the day of Pentecost, I'm sorry, the day of Pentecost, remember when the Holy Spirit came? It's most likely that that was the day after a Sabbath, and that because of the way Pentecost works, and that was also about the same time when the first fruit of wheat was offered. And so the first fruits is significant, and Sunday is significant because not only did Christ arise from the dead on a Sunday, the first fruits, but the Holy Spirit came and indwelled the the ones who believed in Christ at that time as the first fruits of those who would receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? And so the feast of the first fruits celebrated two significant truths. What are they? Well, first of all, by presenting the sheaves to God, the Israelites consecrated the entire harvest to Him. They acknowledged the Lord's grace in providing the crops and recognized Him as the ultimate owner of the harvest. That that was consecrating everything. They also did that with a lot of things, whether it was the the grape harvest, the olive harvest, the firstborn lamb, the, the first son. They didn't offer Him as an offering, but there was an offering made in His stead. Everything was consecrated to the Lord, and that is showing us that we are consecrated to the Lord, isn't it? There's a second um, uh, truth as well, and that is that first fruits were just that. they were the first fruits, and there's a much greater harvest to come. The first fruit as first fruits, Christ consecrated all the resurrection harvest to God and guarantees a greater harvest to come. and we're part of that greater harvest, thanks to the Lord, right? If there are first fruits, there will be more fruit. The first fruits demonstrate the organic unity that exists between Christ and his people. When the Israelites presented a, a sheaf of wheat at the temple don't miss this when they presented a sheaf of wheat at the temple, they didn't go back home and expect a harvest of kumquats. Did they? they expected wheat. And so the Savior's resurrection is the beginning of the Christian's resurrection. And when, when somebody asks, will we be raised on the last day? We can say this, yes, because our resurrection has already begun. Christ was the fruits. It's the same organic unity with Christ. But there's also a solidarity of covenant with him. What do I mean by that? Look at verse number 21. Verse number 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so Adam and Eve, they had a covenant of works with the Lord. And when they broke that covenant with God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as the head... As a representative of the human race, he plunged us all into sin and death and his life and action represented the descendants so that when he sinned, we all sinned, right? We understand that. So God sent a second Adam, Jesus Christ, to live in our place, to obey God, to obey his law perfectly for us, to die and take the penalty for our sin. And he did this to secure the new covenant he says as much in the last supper doesn't he this is the new covenant of my blood which is shed for you therefore all who believe in him are no longer in adam but rather they are in christ if you are in adam you are still in your sins you are still in a condemnation and your future in eternity is permanent death permanent hell But if you are in Christ, you will be made alive, your body will be raised the last day, and you will live forever in joy and bliss of everlasting life. Yes, amen. It's wonderful, isn't it? And so Paul combines an organic unity with a covenantal solidarity to provide the church With an an unshakable foundation of an assurance of faith faith in Christ in the face of death. Think about this. Life is uncertain, isn't it? It is. I saw that uncertainty firsthand when I was in in EMT. And you get the call, the pager goes off, and you go get the call. Life is uncertain. How long will I live? How will I die? How can I face death with peace and confidence? I can't answer the first two questions, but I can answer that third one. The Lord is the only one who can give us comfort and in, in the peace that we need when we have to face the death of a loved one, the, face of a friend, uh, the death of a friend, or even He's the only one who can give us courage and hope when we face our own death. With that confidence... We can live boldly for Christ in this kingdom. We need not fear what man can do who can only kill the body because the resurrection has already begun. But there's a second truth. Not only did Christ, the first fruits, guarantee our resurrection, but Christ, uh, Paul also lays out the order of the resurrection. If you look at verse number 23, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And if he is the first fruits, then we are the second fruits. In other words, when it comes to the resurrection, there's a proper sequence of events in verse number 23. Look at what it says. It says, but each in his own order. Now, that word order is a a military term, and it describes uh, the arrangement or the rank or the sequence in military terms. And and, and so I'm going to speak to all the prophecy buffs out here, all right? God gives the order of the, of the future events here for all the prophecy buffs. You ready? Here it is. Christ is first, then those who belong to him, the end. That's pretty easy, isn't it? That's it. That's what Paul says here. He says, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ is first. Christ is first. But let me ask you a question: Is he the first person who was ever raised from the dead? He was not. You think about it. There was the Shunite woman's son, right? There was Lazarus. Uh, there was uh, uh, several other people who remember the one, the the guy that they tossed his bones and they touched Elisha's bones and he he arose. Remember that? Okay. So there were all kinds of different resurrections. However. Those people eventually face death a second time. Christ, as the first roots, experienced never-ending victory over death. Yes. Next in the resurrection sequence are those who belong to Christ. They are the remainder of the harvest to be raised. He calls us those who belong to Christ. Uh, if you if you search the word in Christ the term in Christ in the New Testament I wish I could remember the number now but it's it's uh, hundreds of references to us being in Christ and if you are in Christ you are one with him and he is one with you he has purchased you from the slave market of sin and redeemed you from its bondage so that you might be his and Paul thought of the believer's salvation in terms of union and ownership, and both are inseparably linked to his or her resurrection. We're in union with him, and we are owned by him. We are his, and therefore we will experience the resurrection. Now, when will this resurrection occur? When will it occur? It will occur at his coming. The word is, is parousia, It's a common term in the New Testament for the Lord's second advent, for his second coming. And and the word parousia, appear, is describing a king or an emperor who who appears, who comes to a city. The parousia. These were huge deals. Uh, This letter is to Corinth. Nero came to Corinth in AD 66 and one of the ways that they celebrated it is that they stamped a, a coin. A coin was made for Nero's uh, uh, visit. And we have one or two of those. But there are many coins that we have found for 60 years later when Hadrian was, was emperor of Rome. I think Adria, Hadrian, if I remember correctly, was 8117 117 to 8132, 132. And we have found many, many coins in Corinth that were stamped for his uh, 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 Perusia. It's it's um, oh no, I forgot it. Uh, Augusti Advent Augusti Corinth is the name of the coin. Advent Augusti Corinth. And Hadrian's visit. They were called holy days, and the pomp and circumstance must have been extraordinary. God was coming to visit. Remember, the emperors God. God was coming to visit. What could be more worthy of worship and praise and this is the idea behind the parousia of god god is coming to visit the king of kings and lord of lords is coming to be with his subjects and when he comes it's going to be the most wonderful day of all days that there ever is i'll get more into that just a minute but one of them is that we are resurrected from the dead we receive our resurrected bodies but what's next look at verse number 24 Then comes the end. It is the conclusion. What is the end? The end is the conclusion of fallen human history. From this point forward, life as we know it will not continue. The end is the goal, isn't it? Then comes the end. That is the goal. That's what we're living for. It is the termination point for which God has been aiming in the salvation of His people. And this has been unfolding now for upwards of 6,000 years or more. But He describes the end. Not only the end in terms of the believer's resurrection, but in terms of Christ. what Christ will do. What will He do in the end? Then comes the end. What? When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So the first thing he does is he he comes and he resurrects his children. The second thing he does is he delivers his kingdom to the Father. When the Lord returns, he will present to his Father the created realm and a subdued kingdom. That's what he's presenting to the Father. He will have subdued some people by grace you and i and he will subdue the others and subjugate them by his sovereign power but through it all he will establish his universal reign remember the the words of philippians chapter two that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue no exceptions every single one will say what Jesus is Lord. And so when he returns, he will deliver a kingdom to the Lord. So he's going to resurrect us. He's going to deliver the natural realm and humanity to the Father. And there's a third thing that he's going to do. What is he going to do next? Verse number 24 says he also destroys every rule, every authority, and every power. And so the the end is not only the deliverance of the natural realm and the deliverance of the kingdom to the Father, but it is the destruction of these powers. Now, what are these powers? What are rules and authorities and powers? What are these hostile forces? These terms often refer to the demonic realm. Matter of fact, most... Every time when these are used together, it's speaking of the demonic realm. Now, he has already won the battle against them, by the way. Or won, won the battle. But it's just like the whole D-Day, V-E-Day thing. Right? Well, he's going to destroy them. In the end, he will have rendered powerless all the spiritual armies arrayed against him. And you see that word destroyed? That's a very interesting word. It doesn't mean to annihilate. That's what we think of, right? I mean, if you go to YouTube, you can find videos of people who um, they destroy things, whether it's with C4 or gunpowder or whatever else. I just I just I've just heard about that. I've never actually watched those videos, right? Uh, just to make it clear, but it's it's not annihilation. They're not going to cease to exist. Christ's purpose. By the way, I'll just say this now. Everything that God has created will never be annihilated. It'll be remade. Okay, but let me get back to this destruction. The word for destroy here means to make ineffective or powerless. So think of it this way. If if between the services I go out to your car and I pull out your battery and I drain the gas out of your car... I have just destroyed your car. I have rendered it powerless to get you from place to place. And when Christ destroys rules and authorities and powers, He has made them completely powerless. These demonic and hostile human forces that currently fight and they rage against the Lord Jesus and rage against His people when Christ returns, He will render them completely ineffective. They will continue to exist in sufferings and eternal damnation, but they will be powerless to keep the warfare against him, against Christ and his church. Isn't that wonderful? Man, I love that. Then look at verse number 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That is such a fascinating concept, and I could talk for a while about that one as well. It's it's in the Old Testament all over. I'll just give you an illustration. I should have probably put a picture up um, on the slide, but in the Cairo Museum of Antiquity, they have the contents of the the tomb of Tutankhamun. And in there, one of the the, the exhibits is a life-size wooden statue of Pharaoh seated on his throne And his feet are elevated on the stool. And on the stool are carved with relief images of all the enemies of the king. And he has put them under his feet. They are rendered completely powerless. And that's the image of what Jesus is going to do. For Paul, this is the language of total surrender and the impossibility of the enemies ever contemplating a comeback. And Christ's victory reminds us of of a few things. What does this mean for us? It reminds us that we never have to be intimidated by or despair over the hostile forces around us. We do not. It may seem like they have the upper hand. They do not. They, They don't at all. We should not give in to hopelessness over the way sin seems to have the upper hand. No matter how much wickedness appears to reign in the present, it will not reign forever. Since agendas that rule the policies of our nation and other nations now will not rule endlessly. When the Lord Jesus Jesus hands over the kingdom to the Father, every wrong will be put right, and the hope of the resurrection will give us a backbone, doesn't it? I can stand against evil because I know in the end Christ reigns. We don't have to be afraid to stand up and speak out for the cause of Christ because the victory belongs to Him and the victory is ours as well because we are in Him and He is in us. And then there's a third thing that that Paul talks about, a third truth, and that is he talks about Christ's reign until the resurrection. So he moves on from the from the sequence of the events and he, he now and explaining the destruction of the evil forces and now he talks about the rain Verse number 26 the last enemy to be destroyed is death the seeming problem by the way and I'm sure some of you have encountered this out in public the seeming problem uh, with the um, Christ resurrection is that you and I still die Don't we? Christians grow old. Are there any old Christians here? All right, don't raise your hands. We battle disease. We're killed in accidents, and sometimes we die mysteriously for no apparent reason at all. But the fact remains that all Christians die, and Christ's resurrection doesn't free us from facing death in this world the, the effects of sin are that powerful and that pervasive we have to suffer the the, per, the physical consequences of the curse but Christ's reign at the father's right hand assures us that death will not be the final word and i wish i had time to really get into this but i am I'm, I'm running out of time but let me just say a little bit look at a verse number 27 because here paul alludes to psalm 110 and also psalm 86 he says for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, this is what Psalm 110, verse number one says. Look at what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Allah to Dagalman, right? And then Psalm 8:6 says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you put all things under his feet. Christ rules and reigns as king at the Father's right hand. Christ's death was uh, the death of death. His subsequent resurrection gives full and public proof that his triumph on the cross was successful, and so death is not finally defeated until the resurrection harvest comes. But all enemies will be put under his feet, and the primary one is death and I'll be so thankful for that day, won't you? Leon Morris, the the English theologian wrote, at present no man can resist the touch of death, then death will be able to touch no man. Isn't that wonderful? I can't wait for that day. Death may touch us for a little while barring the second coming. If you're still alive at the second coming, then death will not touch you. But when Christ returns, it will never touch us again. And so we, we read on, it says, but when all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When Christ returns, let me just explain this verse quickly. When Christ returns and places everything in subjection to the Father, then the Son of God himself will also be in subjection to the Father. The purpose of this subjection is found in verse number 28. Look at what it says. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who has put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. And there it is, that God may be all and in all. Here's the overarching motive for all that God is doing in Christ. It is a statement of God's supremacy. Christ has been raised to defeat and sub, to defeat death and submit everything under his rule. And Christ is going to submit everything to his Father so that there will be no more opposition to God's authority and everyone will honor and worship him. Now, where does this passage leave us as we close? Where does this passage leave us? It should leave us on our faces before the Almighty and worship and adoration. It was wonderful studying this this week. Last night I was reading a, a book. I was um, telling one of the elders about it that uh, it it talks about the new heavens and the new earth and and everything. And it was just oh, it's so exciting. Just worshiping God, thinking about that. If if God's glory is the ultimate goal of Christ's victory, then you and I get this. If let me say it one more time because you need to hear this. If, if the ultimate goal of Christ's victory is God's glory, then you and I live for God's glory. Right? We testify to the reality that the age to come has broken into the present. The word is erupted. I-R-R-U-P-T-E-D. Erupted. The future has erupted into the present. The way we live The attitudes that we display are not inconsequential. Teenagers, I see many teenagers out here. Teenagers, listen. Your attitude towards the heavenly kingdom is not inconsequential. It matters what you think about God. It matters what you think about eternity. It matters what you think of what it means to be in Christ. It matters for all of us, doesn't it? It All of us. And they provide... Us with the opportunity to say to the watching world Jesus lives and Jesus reigns Lord I thank you for the resurrection truth oh I cannot wait for the resurrection and I am standing in the company of many people who cannot wait for that resurrection either. When all things will be made new, when all the forces of sin and demonic powers and hostile human powers will be destroyed, rendered utterly useless. And we will be standing before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in remade bodies Seeing him perfectly clear and worshiping him in the new heavens and a new earth. Lord, I thank you for the resurrection hope and the truth that we find because Christ lives. In his name, amen.